Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Natasha Heller, one of the hosts of the channel. We're here today to talk to Xiaowan Cheng, Associate Professor of Chinese History, Gender, and Religion at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the author of Divine, Demonic, and Disordered, Women Without Men in Song Dynasty China, published in 2021 by the University of Washington Press. Dr. Cheng, welcome to the show. Hi, Natasha. Thank you so much for having me. So it's it's great to be able to have this conversation today. And I actually wanted to begin by asking you, how did you end up in the field of Chinese history? Like what in your studies uh, earlier in your life brought you to this particular area of specialization? Sure. Um, it was... Um... Uh, it's a shame to say, but it was quite a coincidence. I wish I could say that I planned all this since I was little, but it was it was quite a coincidence. Um, I was uh, I was I was originally interested in literature since I was little, and and was still interested in literature in high school. So um, so I went to college uh, in Taiwan. I uh, picked. Uh, Zhongwenxi uh, or the uh, Department of Chinese Literature as my major, uh, and that was, and I went to uh, National Taiwan University. Uh, and uh, so, you know, in a Department of Chinese Chinese Literature in Taiwan, uh, you you are actually not learning just literature; you are learning um, a wide range of things, including uh, Chinese philosophy, uh, intellectual history, um, you know, linguistics, historical phonetics, etc. In addition to literature, uh, I loved all my courses, and I still love literature. But that was also the time when I found that it seems to be the case that I did better in my intellectual history classes than in my literature classes. Uh, so, um, so then um, when I um, uh, uh, when I entered the MA program uh, in uh, in the uh, Chinese literature department at NTU, I chose to uh, to focus on intellectual history. And uh, and I really started to be in the history department uh, when I went to University of Washington for my PhD um, to study with uh, Patricia Ibri. And I went to uh, UW because that's where, and we, I went to the history department there because that's where uh, Pat Ibri was. And um, so that's where I started to, to get my uh, formal training in history. That's how I ended up in uh, in Chinese history. Yes. So your book, I would say, sits at the intersection of gender and religion. And how did you end up in in that place? You know, moving from literature to history, and then that this or is it really at a, um, a very focused kind of study? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for the question. It was it was also quite a coincidence. Uh, at UW, I um, I took courses with Susan Huang, and I did a field with her on uh, Tang Song religious art, uh, and I also 
took a course with uh, Kyoko Tokuno on women and uh, Buddhism. That was a very very enlightening seminar. But um, what really got me into this um, intersection of gender and religion was uh, my experience at Harvard Divinity School. That was just right before I came to Penn. And that's where, you know, it's a program where we happened to that year, we uh, uh, we had five fellows, including me, and there are people working on uh, very different uh, time periods and, and geographical areas. Uh, but we have, uh, so we've, we have me who's working on um, uh, medieval early modern China. We have a Egyptologist who's working on mushroom ancient times, and uh, there's somebody who's working on uh, Palestinian and Israeli women's movement, and there's somebody working on contemporary Catholic, uh, conservative Catholic women in Italy, and there's also uh, another person working on uh, 20th century America, uh, marital sisters in, in America. So that was the place while being with uh, with uh, those people, I started to really uh, think about the question of agency. And uh, I learned a lot from them. We were talking about uh, secularism, uh, queer theory, and uh, we also constantly thinking about the potentially uh, very productive dialogue between modern contemporary studies and pre-modern studies. So we have people working on very different time periods. So, so that's really uh, the, the start that I took this intersection of gender relation very, very seriously. Uh, and when I arrived at Penn here, uh, I have been teaching my, my favorite seminar that's called Gender Religion in China every year. And I was, I've been very, 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 very uh, inspired by my classroom discussions. Um, so... I, uh, I always incorporate studies on gender and religion beyond China so that we can learn something from a larger academic conversation. Uh, I also revise my syllabus every year uh, so that we can always look at something new. Uh, and it's, I think it's, it's in those conversations with my students and with, with other scholars in this field, um, I realized that religion or you know, the questions that people have been talking about uh, in religious studies really open up a new window for us to see a different different view that we, we um, wouldn't have seen in, in, in a regular gender studies class or feminism. Uh, because, because I think it changes uh, or it challenges a lot of the fundamental assumptions that we have when studying gender, uh, sexuality, and women, such as the question of agency, um, the definition of the body, etc. So, um, so yeah, it's a coincidence. But then I, I, um, it's a long trajectory for me to get into this. Right. I, mean, I think this is really fascinating because you, what you've just ex- explored is the importance of different kinds of networks, whether it's the, the colleagues around us or the students in our classrooms mm-hmm. in forming our intellectual interests and our intellectual trajectories. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, I want to turn to the book itself. Um, and I want to say that I think you have m- my favorite opening sentence in like, an <laughs> academic monograph. Um, and, and this is, the opening sentence is, this is a book on what we do not know about women. So can you explain what you mean by this? Because this is a yes. great, like this is, if you didn't want to read the book before you got to this first sentence, I can't imagine um, 
yeah, why you wouldn't want to read it after this. So <laughs> this is a book about what we do not know about women. Uh, yes. So um, that uh, that is my kind of rhetorical strategy to uh, kind of catch people's attention uh, or call people's attention to um, to the attempts to know, not just what there is, what we can know, but but those are the attempts to know by us and by by uh, those historical agents, and and those are most importantly the failure of knowing. What if we end up not knowing, and what if uh, the attempts uh, just um, you know didn't lead to a very firm uh, certain place? So so I want to call attention to that that kind of uh, bewilderment that that. Uh, instability and uh, the, the failure of knowing and um, because the um, I think the, um, uh, the the focus of my uh, of my inquiry is really about uh, epistemology that is uh, the you know the set of uh, vocabulary uh, conceptual frames that were available for people, you know, either men or women, to understand uh, what they experience and to talk about uh, what they see, what they feel, uh, what they think they know, and what they want to know. Uh, and and beyond that, I also want to look at how people navigate uh, experiences and observations beyond that epistemology, beyond a. a readily available set of vocabularies and conceptual frameworks that, um, uh, for them to use. What happened if they experience something? Because I think we constantly do, right? There's never a case when, uh, when the set of, uh, of language that we learn, when um, you know, the, the concept we have in mind can always perfectly explain uh, or express what we feel or, or what, we, uh, what we observe. Yeah, so that's <laughs> the backstory of this, yes. Thank you. So as you say in the subtitle to your book, the, the this is a book focused on the Song Dynasty. Yes. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you chose that time period? Um, yes. Um, so I, uh, again, I wish I could say that, you know, I uh, learned so much about the Song Dynasty and then I did a very deliberate decision, made it very deliberate, but that was <laughs> so not the case. I was, I think it's more uh, that this time period kind of chose me <laughs> uh, because I, I started to um, uh, to work on the Song Dynasty from, uh, from my from the time I was in master's program uh, at NTU, at that time uh, I, I was working with uh, with my advisor Xia Changpu. So he was uh, he was my uh, my professor of uh, Chinese intellectual history class back when I was in college, and I really liked his class. So uh, I continued to work with him uh, in the master's program. He actually he's a specialist in uh, in Chinese intellectual history of of many time periods. Actually, he uh, he does. Uh, the Han Dynasty, the Song Dynasty, as well as the Qing Dynasty. Uh, so when I took a uh, seminar with him the first year in my master's program, it was specifically on Song Dynasty intellectual history. And from that class, I thought, okay, I could write a master's thesis on that subject. So that's kind of how I ended up being a Song specialist. Um, and when I came to... Uh, 
the University of Washington, I think uh, Pat Ebery really opened up my world to see a bigger and a very different world of the Song Dynasty. So, so I really enjoyed that kind of coincidence. Um, and, you know, looking backward and retrospectively, Typically, um, I also really like the idea that uh, a smaller country can also be very, very interesting. Can, a smaller country can be just fine, such as, you know, the Song Dynasty. We know that its territory is relatively small compared to other long-lasting dynasties in China, but it's fascinating. And then um, it's very different from uh, from the kind of traditional, uh, more conventional view of the Song Dynasty that I used to learn when I was little. So yeah, so I ended up really like the um, the dynasty that chose me. <laughs> so you know, reading through your book, I, I was noting that you use a really wide range of sources, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if you can tell us a, a little bit about the types of sources you use for this study, and perhaps also the challenges that those sources present. Yes, uh, you know that's a. Great question, Natasha, because this really is, is, uh, one of the major challenges that I, uh, uh, that I've been grappling with, with this project. Um, and the number one challenge, I guess, uh, is, uh, for, I think for all people who do women's history, gender history, um, the source from my time period, uh, sources are predominantly written by elite men, even though, you know, they can be, uh, uh, or origins, there can be uh, popular uh, tales. Eventually, they were written down by elite men, and uh, and we constantly you know, encounter this challenge, including by myself. Uh, that uh, how can we, um, you know, how how can we depict a more diverse picture, and how can we hear different voices when we only uh, almost only have uh, sources written by a small group of people. And uh, another challenge uh, also has a lot to do with the sources uh, and also the subject of of my book is that I am writing or I end up, uh, I ended up writing about something that is neither a contemporary category nor a uh, category in the Song Dynasty. So um, I, I called it, I just call it manless woman, um, and uh, and at first I wasn't sure what I was looking for because because uh, uh, I wasn't sure if I should look for uh, female sexuality. But what do I mean by female sexuality? Should I look for women? But then what kind of women? What do they do? Uh, so so it's a combination of the sources and the topic, and. Uh, but if we go back to the first challenge that's about uh, sources written mainly by elite men, at first, uh, I went through several stages when I was working on my dissertation. The best I could do at that time was, uh, okay, let me f- try to find the diversity within uh, the diverse opinions, diverse uh, uh, narratives within elite men writing. But... Uh, and I still, I still keep that uh, in the book when I wrote the book. But uh, I think when I wrote the book, I realized this probably this doesn't have to be a limitation. This can also be an advantage. That is uh, because we have this limitation, so we think more critically of authorship. So we think more critically of the connection that we assume between. 
the identity of people who write things down and the content of their writing and, and what we can make out of their writings. Um, including, you know, I think we need to challenge, you know, we need to read very critically everything as a narrative, even though they were written by, uh, by a woman. Or even though it's an interview with a woman, just like you know, now we're having an interview between two women, uh, I can have my own narrative, right? Um, and um, so I think the limitation of the sources, um, as you know, being predominantly written by Indian men, presents a methodological um, challenge and also an advantage for us to think more critically of the relationship between authorship, identities of authorship, and, um, and what we can make out of, uh, out of what they written down, which I think ties back to what I was trying to look at, the, the kind of uncertainties that people have. You know, the, um, what, 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 about, what, what happened when Evie Man couldn't figure out what is going on? What happens when Evie Man couldn't find enough vocabulary, couldn't find enough uh, um, uh, conceptual resources for them to describe what is going on. Uh, then what happens? So, um, so yeah. So these are the challenges, and and the way that I I, I see those challenges as uh, good opportunities for us to make some kind of methodological breakthroughs. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. The idea that these methodological challenges could also be advantages. Um, you mentioned the idea that you know the category of manless woman is something that doesn't appear in either pre-modern or modern sources. And this makes me think of, uh, in your introduction, you, you have this really interesting section about the modern view of sexuality and how that can sometimes obscure um, pre-modern phenomena. And I'm wondering if you could explain for listeners you know, some of the issues that are involved here. You know, in, uh, we know that uh, sexuality as a, uh, as a term in English, the meaning, uh, it did not mean what it means right now, right, in medieval Europe or in pre-18th, 19th century. Um, there, was, there was no term to call sex or sexuality in such a neutral and naturalized way as it is right now. Um, in China too, it was there was no term in pre-20th century that meant specifically and exclusively sex. Right now we call it xing, but then we all know it's a 20th century um, coinage, right, to translate, uh, basically to use to translate uh, sex sexuality. So now, of course, not, not having the term doesn't mean that uh, doesn't mean there wasn't such a concept. But uh, but there really was no such concept of sexuality as a neutral and naturalized uh, human phenomena as there is now. So um, so when we identify something as being sexual in our sources. Uh, those things can mean, those things could mean very different, it could be meaningful to people at that time in a very different way. So I think we need to consider uh, the reference of whatever we identify as being sexual in its original context and what, what, what are associated with 
that specific reference and how it mattered and to whom it mattered. So, um, so for example, when, um, when we see a passage in an ancient Chinese text talking about a woman without sexual contact with men and you know, the kind of problems that, that the woman uh, had, we assume, it's very easy for us to assume that, okay, the author must have been talking about women's sexual frustration. It could be, and it could also be not. So um, it is this kind of uh, of kind of second you no know, second guess. You no know, think again what exactly the original text was actually talking about, um, or you know not not bringing um, not bringing sexuality as a package, right? So now when we talk about sex sexuality, there are a lot of things in this one box, um, and we think about this, this, and that, and uh, we put quite a lot of things in the, the box and we bring that box into uh, into our primary sources uh, and um, and when we see uh, something in that box we automatically think okay there must be other things in the same box too but but there is not such a box right the box where there are different kind of boxes with different kind of uh, stuff in there um, so I just wonder if we, you know, if we don't take sexuality as a given, if we don't take this box with us, and if we tear it apart and 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 go back to our sources and see exactly what they actually had in their boxes, uh, that would uh, that would actually be 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 very interesting, and we can see more nuances. I think that way. So I think that brings us to the the first chapter. Um, and in that chapter, you talk about husbandless women and how they appear in medical texts. And one of the ways in which you contextualize this is looking at um, bedchamber texts alongside of them. So how do these two different sources talk about a women women's lack of sex or the fact that they are not having sex? Mm-hmm. Yes. So... Um... Well, technically, bedchamber texts were uh, for for a long time was considered also kind of medical texts. Uh, but then, uh, but then also very early on, they were uh, they were separated, and then uh, and then uh, after you know in the Tang, especially in the Song, um, um, medical writers tend to exclude those texts and have a, a separate tradition of their written medical tradition. So, um, so I talk about the two as if they were two separate traditions. Um, but but there are of course overlaps and and I think um, people in the song they still uh, have some access to those ancient uh, Bachelor texts um, um, that they still read them. Um, so the the major difference between uh, between the two types of texts uh, was that um, I think in in my observation, the uh, the bedchamber texts were you know the um, uh, uh, texts the, the sexual manuals that were written mainly for uh, for the consumption of of uh, aristocratic men in uh, early medieval uh, medieval times. Uh, they were they were predominantly focused on um, on their male uh, audience. So they were giving advices to to men, predominantly giving advices for men to make the best out of um, out of sexual activities with women. So they are advising, giving advices for men to keep 
both their bodies and their uh, the bodies of sexual partners under control. So it would it has a lot of dis- descriptions of of desire, both uh, the desire sexual desire of men and also the sexual desire and the responses of um, of women. But these are for the male audience or for the male practitioners to observe just so that he, he can know what is going on in, in the whole process so that he could remain in control. And uh, whereas in the medical text, it was not for, it was not so much for this purpose. Uh, in the, uh, in the medical text that, that I, uh, um, you know, that I studied, up to the same times, there was very, very little discussion of women's sexual desire. There were mentioned, there were discussions of women not having sex with men and, and the potential problems or women having sex with men too early or too frequent and the potential problems. Um, but there's almost no discussion of desire. So the, um, so there's, uh, and they focus more. The medical tests focus more on on uh, women's reproductive bodies. So if you know if you have uh, sex with men too early, then how that hurts your uh, your reproductive body. Or if you have sex with men too late, or you have sex with men too frequently, how that hurts your body, and then how that damages your reproductive capacity or the children that you uh, that you give birth to, etc. This is a very, very different focus. So in other words, I guess I, uh, so I made the argument in that chapter that, uh, the, uh, the, what I call sex desire procreation link, which, um, you know, which may seem very, uh, which may seem very natural to a modern audience. That is, um, that is the, the idea that uh, you know, women without uh, sexual contact with men suffered from uh, sexual frustration because women naturally desires men, and women naturally desires men because uh, because men and women sex between men and women produces children, right? So that is a kind of classic modern sexologist uh, uh, viewpoint of of sex sexuality. This kind of link between sex desire procreation was very very. Uh, anomalous up to the same times in the medical texts, there was only mentioning of sex or lack of sex between men and women and reproduction. There was no much discussion on desire up to the same times, whereas in the bedchamber text, there was a lot of discussion on sex between men and women and desire. But there was very, very little discussion or there was no connection between that desire and men and women's reproductive capacity. Hmm. So in chapter two, you turn to a different kind of relation, right? So chapter two is titled Ghost Intercourse in Medical and Taoist Contexts. So I first want to ask you to explain what is ghost intercourse? um, And is it something that people were worried about? (laughs) Right. So um, it's... um, it, it's we could say it is uh, you know sex with ghosts, but uh, but like I said, um, there is no term for for sex. So um, so I use intercourse instead. And I guess what you know 
So this is a literal translation of Guijiao. So I just translate it as ghost import. It wasn't me who translated. I think scholars working on this issue uh, tend to translate it this way. Uh, and um, and I guess just like the English word in your course, uh, we would uh, uh, in specific context we uh, uh, we assume it's sexually related, but uh, but not always. So I think it is also the case uh, with the original term guijiao uh, as well. And so the um. S- s- so it's been uh, uh, we've seen uh, this as a prop as a medical problem in um, in, in medical texts early on, much much earlier than the Song Dynasty, and we also see that in the uh, in the bedchamber texts, there's quite a lot of discussion of it in the bedchamber texts. It's a it's a shared concern, and uh, it general it's generally. Uh, um, described as a, um, as something that that causes the leaking of jing or the leaking of bodily essence, which you know in men uh, oftentimes it's um, uh, it manifested in the leaking of semen, right? And and this kind of problem um, it applies to both men and women, but it's, it's especially of concern uh, for men. And uh, in my observation for the um, uh, for the texts that that talk about this problem, uh, when it occurs in men, usually uh, the symptoms re- more most of the symptoms are uh, are related to problems in the uh, urinary system. It's more physical problem, but uh, when it comes to women, uh, women's uh, ghost intercourse. Uh, is much more behavioral, so uh, that the symptoms for women having uh, the same problem seems to be uh, more uh, behavioral problems. So that's the kind of gender dis- uh, um, distinction that we can see from from early on. There are also uh, different explanations of the uh, the cause of ghost intercourse in bedchamber texts and in other medical texts. In the bedchamber text, it's generally uh, described as being caused by uh, the uh, excessive desire um, resulted from the lack of uh, sexual intercourse between men and women. <laughs> uh, and uh, however, in other medical texts, it's it's never associated with desire, at least not until. Uh, the end of Song or uh, the 14th century, it was never in other medical texts. It was never associated with desire. Uh, it was almost never associated with um, with the lack of sex between men and women either. It's usually described as um, as um, just another. Um, Bodily malfunctioning, the imbalance of qi and uh, and blood in your body, and you know different systems in your body is not working well, which creates um, the vulnerability of your body to be intruded by external pathogens. So, what do the Taoist texts make of ghost intercourse? How do they see it? Mm-hmm. So, um, I I look at. Um, Several Taoist uh, texts. Some of them are uh, focusing on uh, 
on self-cultivation, teaching uh, Taoist practitioners to uh, how to cultivate their bodies and how to practice uh, um, the Tao. And some of them are more um, uh, exorcist manuals. Uh, so the teaching or it's kind of um, uh, manuals uh, for, for Taoist ritualists to perform um, exorcism to help um, other people who suffered from uh, from a variety of problems, including uh, ghost in the course. So in the um, in the Taoist text that focus on uh, on Taoist practitioners bodily cultivation, um, ghost in the course uh, is described not so much as a uh, you know a, a uh, abnormal or a you know, particularly problematic uh, illness is described as a normal body function or a or kind of an ordinary body function, and but that is an ordinary just like other ordinary body functions that uh, that uh, the Taoist practice is trying to transcend and trying to overcome. So the interesting thing is in the metal text texts they tend to. Um, they tend to bring body to uh, bring individual bodies to uh, a um, you know a functional condition, right? Uh, whereas for the Taoist texts, that functional level is problematic to start with, right? So you have to uh, so it's uh, in some uh, in some in, in some uh, passages in Taoist texts, uh, it basically. Uh, juxtaposed uh, ghost intercourse as similar to uh, uh, to people having tears, and um, you know when you sleep, you have you know, your saliva's uh, drooling out of your mouth. To you know something similar to that kind of uh, bodily functions that we would consider relatively normal and not a problem, but the Taoist text, that is a problem too. So the interesting thing with uh, looking at Taoist text, uh, how they treat uh, ghost intercourse is that um, it is not that they uh, uh, categorize specific kind of uh, uh, sexual behavior or sexual activity as uh, as uh, problematic or as, as abnormal. It is the um, it is the sexual activity or the sexual behavior that we would consider just just ordinary um, from our standard or even from the medical author's standard uh, for the Taoist authors. Uh, that is precisely what the problem is. That is being ordinary is the problem. Yeah. It's nicely put. The ordinary is the problem. Yes. <laughs> so... In in chapter three and four, which are the two chapters that form part two, uh, both of these chapters focus on enchantment. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be enchanted, and how is that gendered? So um, this is my uh, enchantment is my translation of uh, the um, the original term may, and um, and in in the uh, Especially in uh, in tales, in, in folk tales, in literary tales, uh, and in anecdotes, um, we see a lot of stories about uh, the kind of enchanted uh, illness or maybe uh, or uh, 
men and women being enchanted by uh, uh, by a demon, by a ghost, by a kind of unknown uh, entity. So, um, and that often, um, you know, that that often involves some description of um, the person and this kind of uh, um, spiritual entity having a relationship that that in our standard it's um it's a sexual relationship so um so that is in other words the you know, enchanted or enchanted disorder is a um uh is is a um uh equivalent of uh ghost in the course in the uh in folk tales basically uh i would put it and uh so i look at uh Stories about uh, about men and women being enchanted in um, from 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 early on from um, the Six Dynasties to Tang to the Song Dynasty, and um, there are um, there are several gender patterns. Uh, for example, uh, women being enchanted by a ghost or by a demon tend to be uh, tend to be more passive. And um, um, and uh, whereas men uh, tend to be uh, less passive, and whereas women tend to be uh, either you know they either they are passively uh, uh, enchanted or possessed, or they were tricked, <laughs> they were um, uh, deceived by uh, by the ghost, uh, they were tricked into that relationship. Uh, and um, and also there is an interesting difference between uh, between the stories of ghost uh, of kind of enchantment in in folk tales or in kind of literary tales uh, as opposed to uh, descriptions of ghosts in the course in medical texts. That is um, in in literary tales and and folk anecdotes. They focus very much predominantly on. Um, on the external case, that is, you know, in as opposed in, in contrast to the medical tradition, which you know, in the medical tradition, it tells you what's going on, what what's, what's what goes wrong in your body, and what do they, what can I do, uh, to to uh, kind of fortify your your bodily function to uh, defend uh, yourself to, to defend uh, yourself against those external intrusion, whereas in the literary narratives, uh, uh, they are almost only interested in the external case that is the kind of the demonic intruders uh, so there's a lot of description about you know what is running intruders which also um which also um uh, makes it interesting because because uh, it focuses so much on uh, literary tales focus so much on the external demonic intruders uh, it doesn't it doesn't really tell you what kind of women uh, are more susceptible to this kind of problem. So it doesn't, it's very rare that you see, it tells you, oh, um, it's, uh, it's a woman who, um, who's, um, who's, who doesn't have sex with men and who has excessive desires so that he has, she has this problem. No, it's usually, um, it's, it's usually just, um, the story is more about, um, how the demonic tutors somehow manage to find women, and then the sim- what symptoms they are. Um, 
so yeah, and then um, the the symptoms between, however, the symptoms of uh, women's enchantment uh, by demons and ghosts, a lot of times are quite similar to uh, to what the medical texts describe. That is, it is predominantly more behavioral. Uh, it talks about women uh, having. Um, um, unorthodox behavior, women um, not willing to see people, uh, women talking to themselves, weeping or laughing their, on their own, or women having very unusual behavior on their wedding day, or uh, you know, that makes their, <laughs> that either makes people not want to marry them or that scare their husbands away. So, uh, so eventually, I came up with this idea that I think at the crux uh, at the crux of women's enchantment disorder is actually the inconvenience of female sexuality to the patriarchal family. So that is kind of my definition of what this problem uh, actually was. Hmm. So I, I noticed, and I'm sure that other um, uh, people who work on the Song Dynasty will notice this as well. That you draw on chapter in chapter four, um, the anecdotes and tales recorded by Hong Mai, um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, what he's doing that is different about, you know, what's different about the stories that he records um, than the, maybe the sources that you saw in pre-Song Dynasty tales. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um- what I see the major difference is that I don't think Homai got to um, got to edit and uh, and kind of polish his stories that much as uh, Tang authors uh, did, because I think it's also it's it's also a very practical. Uh, there's also very very practical reason because he just collected and he published so much, especially towards the. Um, uh, the second half of the whole project. So this project, uh, Hong Mai's collection, lasted for forty years, basically the second half of his life. Uh, and uh, he he was he didn't anticipate his project to grow this big and and to be so uh, to to last so long. And um, and he also made a made a name out of it, and people started to to uh, to send him uh, materials, and he he collect them. Uh, I think. What he did uh, is just to uh, to change the um, uh, to change the voice. Say you know if he got this this story from a specific person and it was a narrative told in the voice of that person, he would change the voice into into his own voice, and so it becomes he described this story and he said I got the story. Uh, from from that person, and this is my uh, description of it. So I think that is that is the um, uh, that that is all uh, the editing that he did, and he probably also changed uh, some other things, but he couldn't make it as uh, as coherent and as um, um, polished as the tongue tales. So. Um, so what we have, so so what we have is that a lot of things got mixed up, and got preserved in in Humai's writings. And if we use more close reading and comparison, we can discover a lot of things that's not there, uh, in in the Tongue Tales. And there's one 
particular thing that I found that's uh, that makes Homai's stories very very different from the Tang tales. That is, so far <laughs> I haven't found one story in Homai's collection that has a uh, omniscient voice. That is, you know, the, the story is always like a patchwork of different people's. Uh, um, witnesses. Some people see this, some people see that, and then eventually, uh, okay, people may figure out or they may not what is actually going on, but um, but there's no you know, omniscient voice telling you, okay, this is the end of the story, and this is what actually uh, is going on, and this is what is behind all this. Uh, there, there's not that. So uh, so that's I think that's why I can find um, a lot of failure of knowing, I think, uh, in, in Homai's stories. Right. So I don't know if you could expand on that, right? So this lack of omniscient voice um, is, is linked to this idea of what in chapter four, you talk about failures and uncertainties. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you see this as related to the epistemology of the Song Dynasty and maybe to the epistemology of, of women in particular? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, um, so one thing is that um, the the process of no, I think from those stories, I think the process of knowing uh, women's uh, behavior, their bodies, was was very diverse and unstable. So people can describe a very similar phenomena. But then, uh, but then, it can end up in different boxes, and then it could end up in in box one first. Okay, people might identify. Okay, this is a woman. He she has uh, she has uh, enchantment disorder. She was enchanted by a specific ghost. But then it got. It, but then it can move to another different box, and then people realize, oh no no no, actually this woman um, there's probably something else, right? This woman was. Um, Actually, a divine woman. She's practicing, uh, practicing celibacy, and she has special relationship with the deities, uh, etc. So that is why you confuse her with this other uh, category. So the, it can move between the boxes. Then and then eventually, um, people can people can can wonder exactly what was going on with the women. They were not sure, um, and uh, also I think from from. You know, closely reading a lot of those stories, we can also see how people—not just how people make sense of um, of what they observe, what they experience, and not just how uh, you know people represent uh, women or represent uh, female sexuality. We also see how people struggle to make sense uh, of uh, their observations and and. From there, I think we can hear some voices that I think those uh, narrators, uh, as well as Homai, uh, kind of inadvertently carried along. So the third part of your book pivots to another kind of women. Um, And early in chapter five, which is titled Gendered Practice and Renunciant Identity, you pose the question, is a female renunciant a woman first or renunciant. How do your sources answer this question? Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, I, I actually, I first, I think I first started to 
think or I first encountered this question when I was um, uh, when I was in uh, Kyoko Tokuno's uh, Women and Buddhism seminar, and I remember there was one um, uh, we were talking about this idea of of Da uh, Zhangfu or great gentleman, like a uh, a Buddhist nun would sometimes describe herself as uh, as a great or as a great gentleman, or she, uh, she could be. Um, uh, she could be described by other people as uh, a great gentleman if uh, uh, they have great, uh, they were believed to have great spiritual achievements. And I remember in that seminar, it was one time, one class, uh, uh, we invited um, Professor Tokuno, uh, invited a, uh, a Taiwanese non-scholar who was, uh, I think was a, uh, a visiting scholar at UW at that time to, to, uh, to have come and have a conversation with us in the class and I was a um so I, w- I was a uh, relentless, uh, ignorant, uh, liberal feminist at that time. So I, 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 I kind of grilled her about the gender inequality, uh, the kind of misogyny uh, whatsoever uh, in, uh, in contemporary Buddhist monastery, you know, in Taiwan, as I observe and this and that. And... Um, and I was like, do you do you need to bow to a Buddhist monk, right? Tell me if you need to bow to a Buddhist monk. And and she said, I remember she said, Well, you know, we are great gentlemen. We are not women as you think. We're great gentlemen. And at that time I just thought she was shunning my question. Uh and then for a long time I, I, I forgot about it until I read um uh Namala Salgado's book um about um uh um, female renunciant, Buddhist female renunciant in Sri Lanka, and where she uh, she mentioned a conversation that also kind of uh, uh, bewildered her uh, for a long time. She so she asked a um, uh, a senior uh, uh, Buddhist renunciant who was uh, who was part participated in the uh, you know in the movement of uh, implementing uh, full ordination for women in uh, in Sri Lanka Buddhism, and she asked that um, uh, that nun if um, if she thought herself as a a feminist uh, and or you know. Uh, as as uh, womanism in 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 Sinhalese. and uh, and that uh, Buddhist nuns' uh, response was that well we are not women. So and 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 then uh, uh, Namala Sagado went into a long discussion of how she was trying to figure out what that means and and why that um, uh, puzzled her so much and what what are the the assumptions that we have behind that. So I think that is kind of how I started to, to look at my sources in a different way. That is uh, when I uh, read um, the Bichoni Zhuan or the uh, uh, by, uh, Lives of Nuns again, um, this collection of non- Buddhist nuns biography from the 5th century. And when I read um, uh, Du Guangting's uh, this collection of uh, Taoist, female Taoist transcendence. When I, when I read those uh, collection of hagiographies again, I ask myself what, what, what the author was trying to do. Well, these authors were all male again, but what were they trying to do? Uh, they are, yes, they are making a specific collection for just the female um, practitioners. There's a female renunciants, but what are they trying to emphasize the fact that these uh, female renunciants are 
are different from from uh, from their male counterparts, or they're actually trying to do otherwise um, the opposite. And I think my answer was that they are actually trying to to do the otherwise. They are recognizing that um, men and women are having different. Uh, uh, space in the institution and in society, but but um, a uh, a female practitioner, a, a Buddhist nun, a a Taoist uh, female transcendent, they are um, they are emphasizing their similarity. They are doing exactly the same thing, and they are achieving exactly the same thing as uh, their male counterparts, which also make them uh, which can also altered their their identity, which made them not becoming a man, but become a non-woman, a non-man, uh, but a renunciant. Yeah. So building on that, chapter six is titled Meanings of Female Celibacy. What did you learn about female celibacy from these sources? And what seems most distinctive in the Chinese tradition? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is a great question. And I, I think I alone cannot cannot do complete justice to this question because uh, I focus on the Chinese tradition, right? And I think we would... Um, I would need to do more work, uh, and or we need to have more conversation with uh, with people who are working on um, non Chinese traditions to see uh, how we can make the comparison. But um, but I think based on my observation of the sources, I think on the one hand, um, like I said, I think female or celibacy. Let's make it this way: celibacy, or by not uh, subjecting one's sexual body to um, to men or to one's husband is a way to transcend the or to alter fundamentally the female body or the female self or nu uh, shen uh, in in uh, in original Chinese. So so basically, what you do, especially what you do, uh, what how you practice celibacy uh, among others, is a way to. Fundamentally transcend your your body and to transcend your uh, your gendered identity. And uh, on the other hand, so that is, I think, uh, what uh, makes um, uh, female celibacy quite unique. Uh, and uh, which you know, I don't think applies to male celibacy actually, uh, because you don't stop being a male uh, simply by doing that. So so. That so that basically speaks to a, a very uh, I think a fundamental difference between uh, between male celibacy and female celibacy in traditional China. That is, uh, you know, we we all know that you know, say Buddhist monks, you know, for men, if they want to join a Buddhist monastery, they also have to encounter. Um, uh, the um, they also have to um, uh, have a good reason. They also have to encounter the um, uh, the barrier of traditional family, their duty as sons, uh, as as husbands, as potential fathers, etc. But uh, I think, especially I think in comparison with um, with my discussion of my analysis of the uh, uh, the Batchenberg text, for example, 
I think the difference is thus: uh, celibate men they basically conformed to the, the expectation that a morally cultivated man should be immune to desire. So that is yes, men may men may be expected to uh, you know to get married to produce uh, offerings, but they are not expected to love their wives. <laughs> they are not expected to love uh, uh, their their concubines. Right? They are expected to respect their wives, or they are expected to run their um, uh, their their families well. But they are not expected to desire uh, women, including their wives. On the other hand, I think celibate women they defied the norm that、uh, women's sexuality should be guarded by their husbands. I mean, people also don't think that you know women should desire their their, their husbands, you know, etc. But then, but then it was ex- more expected that women's sexuality should be guarded by their husbands. And if if women stop desiring their husband. It becomes a problem, and a long times that is one of the major reasons for folk tales to start. You know, people to suspect women are having enchantment disorders. Women are having ghosts in court simply because they stop desiring their husbands. So I think there are very different cultural expectations, gender cultural expectations for men and women that makes、uh, female celibacy and male celibacy very different. So you've been really generous with your time,、um, and I want to know if we could, if I could ask one more question, and that is to ask, what's next?、Uh, do you have a new project that you're working on?、Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So the、um, my next project is、um, is trying to solve the、uh, the question that that I started to、uh, um, to to ponder. But、uh, wasn't able to to fully、um, resolve in in this current book. That is the question,、uh, the, the concept of norm and、uh, normalcy in pre-modern China. That is,、uh, I think that is a bigger question here for our analysis for. Uh, our analysis of gender discourse in pre-modern times, because you no, know, we oftentimes we I think our gender analysis of the contemporary world a lot of times rely on、uh, identifying some kind of say medical normalization of、uh, the female body, for example, right, or the normalization of uh, of uh, sexuality, etc. But、uh, the notion of norm and normalcy is also a modern、uh, invention, right? The、um, you know the meaning of of what is normal is what, what we mean by normal is something that is both uh, uh, kind of statistically common, right? But at the same time, it's kind of healthy, it's correct, it's orthodox. So it's a conflation of、uh, of The、uh, the kind of the descriptive and the prescriptive, or the conflation of the quantitative and the qualitative, and that is very unique、uh, to to the modern world. So,、uh, and if we look at the、uh, the meaning of the the word norm in say in Latin, it means it means completely different. It means basically the、um, you know the right angle,、uh, the the square that you know, carpenters use to to get a right angle, which has nothing to do with.、Um, 
with statistics, which had nothing to do with whether uh, that uh, particular angle is norm is is common or not or average. So uh, so I thought I was oh I was. The similar thing uh, in in traditional China, you know, if we think about a term such as gui fan gui ju, that means exactly the kind of the square that communists use to get a right angle. And if you think about the um, the term, the Chinese term for normal, modern Chinese term for normal, that is zheng chang, right? And that is a compound of uh, made of zheng and chang, and and they mean very differently, right? Zheng means right, right? The orthodox. And Chang means common, right? Or Chang can also mean constant. So, and we don't, we don't have the, um, there is no such compound in, in pre-20th century. So, yeah, so I just wonder if we, again, if we tear this box apart and, and go back to, uh, to pre-modern, Chinese sources um, and look at what exactly how uh, in traditional China construct the notion of norm and normacy and how um, you know how that was different uh, and how that is related to uh, to the construction of gender and sexuality that could be interesting. That sounds absolutely fascinating and I will look forward to reading your new work on that. So Professor Chang, thank you so much for taking time to talk with New Books in East Asian Studies. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, thank you again. Thank you so much, Natasha. I really enjoyed the conversation too. It's, it's really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. So once again, this has been New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.